Well, good morning. I wonder, how has your Easter weekend gone thus far? I'm going to hazard a guess that it's been a little different this year than perhaps in past years. You know, for example, our Good Friday service this year was online, and, and perhaps that was the first time that you've ever had a Good Friday service online. At the same time, during that service, we, we shared communion in our homes, and maybe that was also the first time you had ever done that as a family or as, as a small group that has gathered together. Another thing that's different this year, uh, this was to be our third annual extravaganza yesterday on Saturday. And we know that there are dozens and dozens of volunteers from West Meadows who are involved in that, and so there's probably a number of us who are disappointed we weren't able to participate and serve our community again this year. For me myself, as I reflected upon that yesterday, I was well aware that there is this kind of tension I could feel inside. Because we had something big planned. We knew that it was going to be embraced by the community, that they've come to accept it as part of their annual calendar, and we weren't able to do it. And so there was a sense of tension that I could feel in the midst of that. But such is the nature of Saturday on Easter weekend. Like, think about it. We don't often reflect upon Saturday. You know, on, on Good Friday, we, we have our service of remembering the death and sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And then on Sunday, today, we come together and we have a celebratory time where we remember his resurrection and we reflect upon that and we praise and, and remember through song, through word, through scripture reading, which we've already done today. But what about Saturday? Like, what role does Saturday play on Easter weekend? Did you ever think about what Saturday was like for the disciples? You see, we have the benefit of knowing how the story ends. We know that Sunday's coming, and we know what Sunday holds in store for us, but they didn't. They didn't know how the story ended yet. And, and following the dramatic events that surrounded Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his burial, I think it's safe to assume that for his disciples, Saturday was defined by disorientation by this sense of uncertainty, and certainly by tension. There's moments in our own lives where perhaps we can relate to this a little bit, where there's an occasion we experience where we feel a bit of that tension. Many of us can think of a time when we had to write a final exam. And then from the time of writing the exam until our grade comes through, there's that tension. Did we pass? Did we fail? There's times where we go for a job interview, and we think it went okay, but they just shook our hand and said, we'll get back to you. And then we have that moment of tension while you wait to hear the decision. Or, or perhaps you can think of a time when, when you proposed to your fiancé and you got down on the one knee and you opened the, the, the box with the ring and you, you recited what you had rehearsed and planned to say for weeks and weeks and weeks. And then you stand there waiting, wondering, is it a yes, is it a No. We live in a time of tension right now as well, not just with Easter season, but during this whole COVID experience. With each news article, with each weekly or daily update we receive, we wonder what's next. You see, Easter Saturday for the disciples was defined by living in the tension of the moment. Feeling not broken within them, a tension that is unresolved within them but demanding some form of reorientation, some sense of closure, some sense of clarity for what the days ahead hold. 
Like when you learn that you pass the test, when you get the job, when your wife says yes, when we can congregate in this place again one day in the future. Easter Sunday is that payoff. Easter Sunday is when the tension is broken and when the final outcome becomes known. Now on Good Friday, we had the opportunity to focus upon the first three verses of a well-known hymn that Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Philippi. And we find that in Philippians chapter 2. And, and in this letter, he starts to describe the tension that we feel. He talks about how Jesus, being the very nature of God, humbled himself, and then taking the nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, chose to dwell among us. And he, as he dwelt among us, he obediently walked the path towards the cross, where out of an act of pure love for us, he made that ultimate sacrifice by dying upon the cross where the price for your sins and for my sins were finally settled. And at that moment of the story, we reach the low point as he is literally placed into the grave. Cue the tension. Cue the uncertainty of Saturday. But the hymn in Philippians 2 continues. It continues to Sunday because today is Sunday. And when we gather on Easter Sunday, we as a church say, He is risen. couldn't quite hear you, because typically when we're all gathered together, you would respond, he is risen indeed. So here's what we're going to do this year. I can't have you assembled in the congregation with me today to hear, but here's what we can do. You can type in the comment box, you can pound on that smiley face on the box there, and you can say, he is risen indeed. So we're going to do it one more time. He is risen. I could hear you that time. Because the steps of leading through that psalm, through, through that hymn that we see in the, book, in the book of Philippians. Leads us to this moment of tension, but that tension is resolved as God steps to center stage, as God breaks the tension and responds to Jesus' faithful sacrifice. And here's how Paul describes that, picking up the hymn in verse 9. He says, Therefore, Therefore God exalted Jesus to the highest place and he gave him the name that is above every name. Because of Jesus' act of faithful, humble, sacrificial service, God responds in two ways. First of all, he exalts him to the highest place where he is recognized as being sovereign and having superiority over all of creation. Now, this doesn't mean that he's elevated to a place higher than he had previously. He was always the pre-existing God. But in light of him dwelling among creation, the distinction of Almighty God who dwelt among creation, the distinction becomes more pronounced. You know, there were people who had, who had walked with Jesus, who, who knew him, who had debated him, and they knew there was a difference between him and them, but now, following the resurrection, that distinction is so much greater. It would be similar, for example, we all, know, uh, we all know Zach. Zach Hayashi, who works in the church here. He's probably the tallest guy in the church. But he's not the tallest guy in the world. And while you stand beside Zach, and you might have to look up to Zach, if Zach stood beside the tallest man in the world, who is 8 foot 11, Zach would look small. The distinction would be incredible, like you hadn't seen before. 
Perhaps you, you think that you're a pretty fast runner, but we know that Andre de Grasse is the fastest man in Canada, and as fast as you think you might be, if you line up at that starting line against Andre de Grasse and they hit that starting gun and you run, you'll find out just how fast you really are or perhaps aren't. You see, the distinction became immense when the king of heaven dwelt among us and then was exalted following the resurrection. And given the greatness of Jesus, he was also given a name that is above every name. Now, now Paul doesn't tell us directly what that name was. Perhaps the name was Son of God. Perhaps the name was Jesus, which means he saves. Maybe the name he's thinking of here is the name Lord. But but actually, the name itself is not the most critical thing here. What's important is what Paul's trying to emphasize. Because names hold meaning. Think of your own name, for example. Your name is special to you. If you think about the origins of your name and how you have a shared name with your family, it speaks of part of your identity. It, it speaks of family ties that you may have. Uh, one example I can share with you is my eldest son, Samuel. His full name is Samuel Allen Seth Dixon. All four of those names have meaning. You see, the name Dixon is, is the most obvious. It's the family name that he inherits by being a son in my family. Uh, the name Samuel, Nadine chose that name for him because she prayed to God and asked for a son. And it reminded her of the story of Hannah who prayed for a son, and Samuel means God heard. And Hannah named her son Samuel, as did we. The name Allen, Samuel Allen, is another family tradition. For generations, for me, my dad, my grandfather, going back generations, it's a family middle name that's passed on. But Samuel Allen, Seth, the name Seth was chosen. Because before Samuel was born, Nadine and I suffered the loss of another son. And just as Adam and Eve suffered the loss of a son, and God gave them a new one who they named Seth, we too named our son Samuel Allen Seth. You see, names have meaning. But names also can share a sense of identity in terms of a role that a person plays. Think, for example, of the name wife or the title wife. Many men in this world will say, that's my wife. And it's, it's a shared characteristic that married women have. But for me to say Nadine is my wife is an exclusive role that no other person can say, can truthfully, rightfully say. So names have meanings. Names convey roles. Names also reveal a sense of, of position and authority. If you say somebody is an owner, they are a CEO, they are a lead pastor, that conveys a sense of responsibility, a sense of authority that they have over others. Why do I mention all this? Because Jesus was given the name that is above every name in all of creation. He was given a name, he was given a meaning, he was given a role, he was given authority that is unlike anything you will find throughout history and throughout creation, a name that is above every name, a name that is superior and sovereign over all, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow 
in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The, the scene described here in the end verse of this hymn that Paul wrote is reminiscent of this throne room scene where all of creation is assembled and Jesus is seated on the throne and there is no rival. There is no game of thrones. There is no disagreement. All agree who is worthy to sit on that throne. And only one question remains, whether his subjects will willingly bend the knee and declare him Lord. Those who accept his mercy and his forgiveness during this lifetime, they voluntarily fall and kneel and worship before him. Those who have opposed, those who have resisted his love and his grace are no longer able to deny it. And they are put to shame by the truth and the reality of him who has the name above every name. But this is never intended to be sort of a hostile takeover by God. It's never meant to be a declaration that they make by coercion. You see, rather, God's desire throughout history, today and every day going forward, God's desire is for all of us to personally hear and experience the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ. For us to voluntarily come to a point of knowing that there is no other king worthy but Jesus. Now all of us have a king in our lives. You may not have thought of it in, in terms or in language such as that, but all of us have something or someone who determines your direction, your choices, your priorities, your beliefs, Think of it, for example, there are some people who are consumed by an all-consuming goal, like an athlete who is focused on nothing but winning until they win the trophy, until they are the best. And that drive, that goal influences every decision they make in terms of their calendar, their relationships, and their priorities. There are some people in this world who are driven by success, but a desire to have more possessions, and, and those possessions become their sense of security and identity. Before I was a pastor, when I was a sales manager, I had one salesman that was just consumed and defined by this to the point that he chose to go on a profitable business trip instead of being present for the birth of his first daughter. There are also many in this world who are not just influenced by external pressures like that, but actually it's more internal, where they've chosen to trust in themselves. They've made themselves the authority in their lives. And when that happens, we become kings, and we become queens of our own realms, and we are ruled by self-determination. Now for Christians who struggle with this, with this sense of wanting to be and, and sitting on that throne themselves, there's tension we see that tension happen again because there is only one throne and there can only be one king. And so to accept Jesus' offer, to invite him into your life, to declare him Lord of your life means that you can no longer sit on the throne as the king or queen of your life. Now, the choice still remains yours. The power is always yours to choose. Because God's relationship that he seeks with each of us is, is a relationship that's established upon love. And love, by definition, cannot be forced. It cannot be commanded. It necessitates the ability of choice. You never lose that free will. 
You will always, every day, when you open your eyes, you have a choice to follow in the footsteps of Jesus or you have the choice to forge your own path. That's a choice we all have each day. But when we come to understand the significance of who Jesus is, when we come to understand what he accomplished for us, it becomes clear there is no other valid option because there is no greater ruler and there is no greater authority. There is only one. There is only one who fulfills all prophecy of Scripture. There is only one who is the long-awaited Messiah. There is only one who brings peace to the troubled, who brings strength to the weak, who brings purpose to our lives. There is only one who searches for the lost and says that they will be found, who welcomes the prodigal back with open arms. There is only one who died upon the cross to open the way for us to be in relationship with God. There is only one who was raised from the dead on the third day and is exalted to the highest place. There is only one under heaven. There is only one name by which we must be saved. There is only one king. There is only one Jesus. And I wonder, do you know him? The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's Son. He's a sinner's Savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient Savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. Uh, I wish I could describe him to you. He's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. 
you can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king! That's my king! Amen. Jesus is our victorious, risen Savior. There is no other king. There is no other name worthy of our praise. On Good Friday, we reviewed how he walked the path to the cross from being falsely condemned to being beaten, to being crucified, to being buried. Why was he willing to do that? Well, because he loves you. And that is the only way to pay the price for your sins and for mine. On Good Friday, we reviewed a passage of scripture from Isaiah 53 that tells us that he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. But on Easter Sunday, we celebrate Jesus' victory over sin and death. And we praise him as the risen Savior because as that verse finishes in Isaiah 53, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. See, without him, we're lost in our sin. Without Jesus, we are stuck and identified by our sin. That means that we are separated from God for all of eternity. But God loves us. God loves you. And sent his one and only son to stand in the gap, to, to pay the price for your sins and for mine. And he invites us to share, not in the death, but in the victory that we declare on Easter Sunday. He invites us to accept that free gift of forgiveness that he gives to all who are willing to humble themselves under him and declare him as the king of their lives. Romans 10, 9 says that if you will declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So before I close with a word of prayer, I have two questions for you. Two questions for you to consider. First of all, do you know him as your savior? That means, do you understand you even need a Savior? That you have a sin problem that you cannot solve yourself, but the good news is that Jesus already solved it for us if we will accept his forgiveness and declare him Savior of our lives. Do you know him as your Savior? The second question is this. Do you know him as your Lord? Do you know him as the one who sits on the throne of your life? Where each day you renew that commitment to be in submission to his will, to his ways, to his, his values, his passions, his desires for your life. If you say yes, that he is my savior, he is my Lord, it can be a difficult walk some days, but I can guarantee you that you will never walk alone, that Jesus is with you, he loves you, he will cause his face to shine upon you, you will experience his peace and his joy even when it doesn't seem like it makes sense. And you will be a powerful witness and testimony to those around you that there is only one name under heaven by which we must be saved. There's only one name worthy of our praise, and that name is Jesus Christ, our risen Lord. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending your Son to pay the price for our sins. We thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit that, that comes to each person to convict them that, yes, this is what you've been searching for. Jesus is the one that you need to add to your life, to transform your life, 
to renew everything about you that you come to see yourself as one who lives under the authority of Christ. God, help us to understand what that looks like each day of our lives. That as we open our eyes each day, our thoughts would be, thank you, Jesus. Help me to serve you today, Lord. Help me to make you the Lord of my life each day. That I will come to know you in a deeper, more personal, more powerful way. Not only for myself, but for the benefit of the world around us, who too can come to know you as the risen Savior. Amen.